Hi, and welcome to Special Issue, Wiley's podcast about and for society publishers. I'm Anna Ayler. This month we're talking about peer review, specifically double-bind peer review, and an intriguing study that kicked off in September of 2019 at the British Ecological Society, looking at whether double-blind is actually effective at reducing bias in the peer review process. The chair of their publications committee recently spoke with the editor running the project, and we're going to listen in on their conversation, which was originally aired on the British Ecological Society Journals podcast in September. I'm Jane Hill from the University of York, and I chair a publications committee at the British Ecological Society. Um, The publications committee is responsible for all publications activities of the society, including Uh, are six journals of which functional ecology is one of them. And today I'm talking to Chuck Fox about a new study that's about to start at functional ecology. Uh, So, hi Chuck, do you want to um, introduce yourself and say what this podcast is going to be about? Yeah, um, so my name is Charles Fox and I'm a professor of evolutionary biology at the University of Kentucky. And I'm also editor of one of the British Ecological Society's journals, Functional Ecology. And we're beginning uh, this month, or this coming month in September, to do an experiment with the journal where we're going to test the consequences of double-blind peer review as compared to the more traditional model of of single-blind peer review. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what double-blind peer review is and perhaps explain how it differs from the more common models that are used. Yeah, so the model of peer review that the journal has been using since its inception is something we call single-blind peer review. And that's a model where when an author submits a paper, then that paper is sent out to reviewers. The reviewers know the identity of the authors. Uh, So their name is, is listed, say, on the cover page of the manuscript, and they're identified when reviewers are invited. We generally identify who the the authors are in the title of of the paper. The reviewers, however, are are not identified to authors. They're they're kept anonymous. And and the purpose of that is so that reviewers can provide objective feedback without fear of of creating conflict with the um, people who are authors of the paper. Double-blind peer review, which we're going to be testing, is, is a model where authors are also anonymous to reviewers. Reviewers are invited to review a paper without being told who the authors of that paper are, and when they review the paper, they won't know the identities of the authors. They'll know the title of the paper, and of course they'll have the manuscript, so they'll have the content of the paper, but they'll have to review that independent of knowledge of who wrote that that manuscript. Can you tell us a little bit about why the trial is being conducted by uh, Functional Ecology, and a bit about what the trial is? There's a widespread perception that scientific publishing is subject to many sorts of biases. Um, When authors submit a paper and identified to reviewers, there's a lot of information that carries with that. You learn, you know, whether the authors are male or female, you you learn something about the reputation of the authors. If people are at a a high-profile university or they have a very high-profile reputation in the literature and are known to many people, and there's concern that that knowledge about who it is that's an author of the paper can lead to many sorts of biases in the review process. So the reviewers may defer to people who have high profile reputations in in the literature. Uh, They they may discriminate against different groups of people. So maybe they'll discriminate against uh, authors from developing countries or discriminate against women in the review process. And many of these biases may be completely 
unconscious, we're not aware of them, but they still exist and influence how we, we assess a manuscript. So we want to know to what extent do those biases influence manuscripts that are, that are submitted to the journal. Um, one, one of our options we could have is we could just switch to being a double-blind uh, journal, but there's also potential consequences of going double-blind. There's an increased workload on editors. For example, we believe it's going to be harder to find reviewers for papers uh, if authors are not being identified, but we don't actually know if that's true. So we want to have as much evidence as we can to what the benefits of switching to double-blind are and what the costs of switching to double-blind are, such as for uh, the processes that the journal will undergo and, and maybe changes in tone of reviews or changes in the ability to recruit reviewers and so on. So our goal is to have uh, evidence-based policy and unfortunately we just don't have many examples in the literature of people who have tested uh, compared directly single-blind versus double-blind at a single journal. And so we're doing that experiment. It's quite interesting to think about what the costs then might might be. So when you're saying about the tone of the review changing, why, why do you think that might be? Um, well, there's a little bit of evidence that that the the way people write reviews uh, is, is it changes depending on sort of who they're writing the review for. So when let's take a different extreme, we're not actually going to be testing open peer review, but open peer review is a model of peer review where the reviewers are identified to the authors. So nobody's anonymous in the process. The authors are not anonymous. The reviewers are not anonymous. And we know from evidence that when people are identified, the reviewers are identified, they tend to be more positive, more constructive, but they also tend to be a bit less honest in their criticisms because they're going to be identified as the person making those criticisms. As a journal, we want to know an honest assessment of, of a manuscript. Now, it might be the case going the other way that when, when reviewers don't know who, who the authors are, um, maybe they're, they're actually more critical of the authors, maybe they're less critical of the authors. We don't actually know what to expect because there's not much evidence of that. Most journals that have adopted double-blind as a model, they switch wholeheartedly from single-blind to double-blind. And, and many things change. We see uh, the types of authors that submit might change. Various things about the process uh, the journal undergoes have changed. But all of those things, it's unclear what is cause and effect. Doing a randomized trial like we're doing will hopefully allow us to identify uh, what is actually influenced directly by the peer review model versus what is influenced by, say, community perceptions of, of the journal that are themselves influenced by the models of peer review the journal uses. So, so could you give us a bit of an indication about the sorts of data that you're going to collect? We're, we're going to collect quite a lot of information. We already track sort of everything that happens in the, in the peer review process. When letters are sent out to reviewers, we know how quickly it takes reviewers to respond and whether they agree to review or don't agree to review. We then know how long it takes them to submit their, their review. Uh, when the review is submitted, it's given a, a ranking. We, we ask uh, about the, the significance, importance, and quality of the work. So reviewers are giving an objective score, hopefully objective uh, numerical score on their perspective on the paper. And then, of course, we have the reviewer comments, which we can look at those reviewer comments. We can see how extensive the comments are, what the tone of the comments are, the type of language that they use in their review. 
Uh, we know whether they've recommended we accept the paper or not. Uh, and so we'll have all of this information about what the reviewers are doing. Then we're going to query reviewers with a survey, uh, and we're going to ask them, did they know who the authors were on a paper? Uh, in ecology, of course, a lot of people work in field systems. They work with organisms where they become specialists in. They have reputations for working in different systems. Uh, and so if a manuscript comes in working on a particular study system or at a particular location, it may actually not be very well blinded, even if the authors are not identified, because we know who works in that system. We know who works with those organisms. So we're going to ask reviewers, did you know who the authors were? And if you did, who were they? And then, of course, we can compare that to who the authors really were uh, to see how well papers are blinded. We're also going to survey authors about their perspective on the process. A lot of uh, this data we already have about authors and, and reviewers, but we're going to know whether authors and reviewers are male or female. We're going to know what institutions they're at. We can then look at the profile of those institutions. We have data on the reputation of authors and reviewers, for example, their publication history and how well those, those authors and reviewers are cited. So we're going to have quite a lot of information about the individuals, so we can then ask questions like, when author identities are not blinded, reviewers know who the authors are, do they defer to people that are at high-profile institutions? Do people write kinder reviews when they're reviewing papers written by graduate students than they do when they're writing papers by more senior scientists? So I guess it'd be quite interesting to see, um, well, first of all, I guess whether people are actually um, trying to work out in the blinded studies whether they're trying to work out who the authors are, and then I guess whether or not they do get um, they do predict that correctly or yeah, not. Yeah, I, I think a lot of reviewers will speculate as they're reading about who the authors are, and and a lot of them will believe with confidence that they know who the authors are. We we see this occasionally when people will appeal a decision, say an author will appeal a decision on a manuscript, and they'll say, well, I know so-and-so reviewed it, and they have this grudge against me, and I will go look at who the reviewers were, and that's not actually who reviewed the paper. So yeah, yeah. I think people do tend to make assumptions about who's reviewing their paper, and we would expect that same thing when reviewers are, are reading a paper for which the authors are not identified, they're going to make assumptions about who those authors are. One of the other biases that I, I'm particularly interested in is whether there's discrimination against people from developing countries. And, and I could see our results going two ways. One is that reviewers reading papers by authors from developing countries uh, tend to be a little less uh, supportive of that research because they're making assumptions about the quality of the work based on the locations of the authors. But I could also see it going the opposite way where people are a bit more sympathetic to authors writing in a second language. Um, you know, I was born and raised speaking English and so I ought to be able to write English very well. If you're a Chinese author writing in English, I'm extremely impressed when your paper is very well written uh, because that's got to be much harder to do. And so I could see that sort of bias actually going opposite from the predictive direction, being a little bit more uh, positive and constructive when you know that somebody is writing in their non-native language. So can you t tell us a little bit more about the overall design of the study? Um, so you've already talked a little bit about the fact that you've already been tracking this information. So you've already got the, the before information. 
So what, what we're doing is a, a randomized trial where every manuscript that is submitted is going to be assigned to either uh, a double-blind treatment or a single-blind treatment. So uh, each manuscript is only going to be a single data point. It's going to end up in one treatment or the other. And if it's in the single-blind treatment, it's going to be treated just like every manuscript we've handled for the journal uh, for the last decade. It, it's going to be sent out to reviewers. Reviewers are going to know who the authors are because they'll be identified in the invitation email, like most journals, not all, but most journals do. Papers that go into the double-blind treatment, uh, which will be half of, of all research papers we receive, um, the cover page will not be present when it's sent to reviewers, and when reviewers are invited to review, they will not have, uh, they will not know the identity of the authors. They'll get the title of the paper, but they won't get information about, about the authors. To implement this, what we're doing is requiring that all papers be submitted to the journal exactly the same. They'll be submitted as if they're going to be reviewed double-blind. So cover, uh, cover pages will be submitted as separate documents. Those cover pages will include the acknowledgments. We also instructing authors not to use language in their paper in any manuscript in either treatment that uh, intentionally identifies themselves. So for example, if you're referring to references, don't refer to my previous research on this topic. Instead, just refer to previous research on this topic and then list, list citations. Um, we are not requiring authors to anonymize their study sites or study organisms or anything like that. We want to implement double-blind as if people were writing the best paper they can write. They're just not identifying themselves personally. So you've talked a little bit about what the authors are, are doing in the two treatments. What about, what about the reviewers? So from the reviewer perspective, the only thing that's going to be different is when you receive an invitation from the journal to review a paper, you will not be told who the author is. And when you receive the manuscript, it will not have a cover page or acknowledgements on it. After you review the paper, we will send you a survey and ask you a little bit about yourself and your perspective on, on peer review. And then we'll ask you if you could identify the authors of the paper, and if so, who those, who those authors were. And then we're going to compare that in our data set to, to figure out sort of on average how good are people at de-anonymizing papers uh, when we did not provide them author information. So, so Chuck, do you know if there's any evidence that reviewers' um, behavior in terms of whether they accept an invitation to review a paper um, changes for either single or double-blind review processes? I don't know of any evidence about that at all. I am worried that we will find that people, I think this is true. I think it's true for me personally. I suspect it's true for most people. When you get a paper to review, you not only look at the abstract of the, of the paper, but you also look at who wrote that paper. So I worry that reviewers will be less likely to accept an invitation to review if they don't know who the authors are. Um, the journal already has a problem, and this is a widespread problem throughout the, the ecological uh, literature, that editors are having more trouble finding reviewers than we used to have. Uh, there's huge numbers of manuscripts being published, uh, and people are being asked to review lots of manuscripts, and, and people are declining a lot more often than they used to. So if we implement a new policy that is going to make it even harder for us to find reviewers, that's going to add delays to the publication process. Uh, and, and reduce our ability to get the sorts of reviewers that we want to be reviewing manuscripts. So you're, you're going to run the 
um, trial for the study for two years. So why that length of time? Yeah, so we, we need to have a reasonably large amount of data to be able to address the questions we want. The uh, Many of the effect sizes we expect to observe, if there, if there really are real uh, effects, are probably going to be fairly small. Um, so the journal right now re is receiving about 1,400 submissions a year. And so roughly half of those could go into each treatment. A fairly large percentage of those actually don't get sent out for review. So we might expect to get about 400 papers per year into each treatment. 400 in, in each treatment may sound like a lot, but when you're trying to pick up effect sizes on the order of, say, a 5% difference rate in, say, the proportion of papers recommended for acceptance, um, it's very hard to detect those 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 kind of small effect sizes with a data set of, of 400 papers per treatment. So over a two-year period, I'm hoping that we'll get roughly about 800 papers per treatment. Um, and that would be uh, hopefully a large enough uh, sample size to detect the effect sizes that we have in mind, which are effect sizes of between 5 and 10% differences uh, in, in some cases. So can you tell us a little bit about when we might hear about the findings from your study and how you're going to let people know what you found? Yeah, so the hope is that this will lead to a series of publications addressing a variety of different questions. So, for example, addressing uh, uh, biases against author I identities. We expect to have a produce a, a manuscript on uh, recruitment of reviewers. We'll probably have a manuscript on uh, attitudes of authors to the process because we're going to survey our authors. There's going to be a variety of different uh, manuscripts that come out of this. They might come out as editorials in the journal. They might come out as research manuscripts. That's still all to be decided. But the, the society has been very supportive and the journal has been uh, has emphasized through the entire process that we want to make all of the data we get from this public with the, of course, caveat of, of personally identifying information. We want to use our experiment to get as much information as we can that will guide both the British Ecological Society, but also other publishers and, and journals uh, and help them make decisions about what the consequences of double-blind will be for their processes and, and the assessment of, of manuscripts that they're handling. We're looking forward to the results of the study, which should tell us a lot about whether double-blind peer review really works the way we think it works, reducing bias of all kinds, but also whether there are any costs for the editorial team. Are reviewers less likely to accept, for example, if they don't know who the authors are? If you're interested in learning more about different models of peer review and taking stock of how peer review is working for your publications, email betterpeerreview at wiley.com to get a link to our peer review self-assessment. It will give you personalized feedback to help you strategize with your whole journal management team about what's working well and what you might want to change. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time. For Wiley, I'm Anna Ayler, and you can find more episodes and learn when new episodes are released by subscribing in iTunes or wherever you like to listen. You can get more news and information on society publishing from Wiley on Twitter by following us at Wiley Societies and on our website, wiley.com slash network slash society leaders. Our theme music was produced by Medine, and this episode was edited by Dennis Velasco. Thanks for listening.